Hello, I'm Eddie French, and you might recognise me from such icy news noises as... <coughs> Daddy! And who could forget... <coughs> well, the good news is, is that I now have my own podcast. It's called Pick Scraped, and it is a fortnightly sketch show uh, made entirely by me. So if that sounds like the sort of thing you'd like, go to wherever you get your podcasts and listen to it. Thank you. Pick Scraped. You're listening to IC News, the only network bringing you the stories from across the multiverse. As war continues to rage in Ukraine, Roman Abramovich is finally sanctioned for his links to the Russian government, as the two-week delay he was given to get his money out of the country gives a whole new meaning to the phrase, the Chelsea transfer window. Scientists say they are keeping a close eye on the newly discovered Deltacron variant, a hybrid strain of the Omicron and Delta strains of coronavirus, as Covid continues to dress even more sluffily in a desperate attempt to keep our attention. A parliamentary report finds that John Burko was a serial bully who shouted at and belittled civil servants. The former speaker will now be denied a parliamentary pass, unless of course the Prime Minister again decides that bullying doesn't matter and promotes him to Home Secretary. And finally, the actor Jussie Smollett is sentenced to 150 days in prison for faking a racist attack in order to boost his own profile, as prosecutors successfully hand him enough rope to lynch himself. Hello and welcome. I'm Sam Gore, and you're listening to another episode of IC News. I'd love to give you a charming and witty introduction, but I'm just trying to read the auto cue laying out the week's events, and it appears to just be looping constantly between the poop explosion and crying face emojis, so I think it's safe to assume that things here on Earth Prime are still pretty much entirely fucked. Russian forces are slowly encircling the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv, committing apparent atrocities as they go, with Vladimir Putin continuing to espouse baseless conspiracy theories that look worryingly like further justifications for more escalation. Quite how you escalate from bombing a children's hospital, none of us should be particularly keen to find out, which is why it's distinctly worrying that some warhawks in the West continue to advocate for the sort of direct military interventions that would see a wider war spill into Europe. Calls for a NATO-enforced no-fly zone continue to mount, and this week Tom King has been travelling the multiverse to see just what that would actually mean for the war in Ukraine. Thanks, Sam. We're now on day 18 of a full-scale war in Ukraine and the horrors unfolding in full view of the world continue to mount up. From a reckless artillery strike on a nuclear facility to the alleged use of cluster munitions and thermobaric weaponry to the deliberate targeting of mutually agreed refugee corridors and then a children's hospital and maternity unit. Things are now very grim on the ground indeed for Ukrainians. While the Russian advance has clearly had some serious logistical issues and faced punishment from an incredibly defiant and determined Ukrainian army, it still has a huge firepower advantage and the apparent willingness to use it. The Russians now appear to be relying on the same sort of brutal tactics that served them so well in Syria and Chechnya. 
to surround your enemy's population centres and besiege them indiscriminately to shatter the will of the population. It's an unthinkable level of brutality that has killed hundreds, maimed thousands and displaced millions. And on a purely selfish and personal level, it doesn't exactly make for the most hilarious podcast opening. I signed up for this shit on the basis that I'd get to do some hilariously light-hearted dimension hopping. Maybe try a few interesting cuisines and meet some new people. And do you know what I got instead? I'll fucking well tell you. This is Earth Papa X-Ray 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 3.6 Röntgen. And as you can probably tell from the sound this particular bit of kit is currently making... I'm not exactly overjoyed to be here right now. Why I am here is the same bullshit thinking that sees journalists get sent to stand in flood water or at the end of a pier during a record-breaking storm. It's because the rules of journalism dictate that for some reason we have to illustrate whatever catastrophic point we're making by getting soaked or blown over or having our balls thoroughly irradiated. I'm not a big fan, but apparently it gives a story texture, which, funnily enough, my aforementioned balls feel like they're developing with every second I stand here. This is the blasted nuclear wasteland of a parallel Earth that fucked around and found out, and it's one that we are teetering terrifyingly close to back home on Earth Prime. It may seem utterly unthinkable, but the simple reality is that a wider war in Europe is now very much a possibility. Russia, and Vladimir Putin personally, have undoubtedly been taken aback by the strength of the Western response and the level of Ukrainian resistance to this war. But that doesn't mean that we in the West should be completely irrational in opposition to this horrific occupation. The calls for a NATO no-fly zone or direct military intervention of any other kind from outside Ukraine are incredibly dangerous propositions that risk making everything a damn sight worse. Ukraine faces an impossible situation and President Zelensky can hardly be blamed for calling out NATO for refusing to counter Russia's air dominance in his country. He doesn't exactly have much to lose right now and while Ukraine still resists and the atrocities keep piling up, It's fucking painful to stand before you like this and play devil's advocate for not intervening. But the simple fact remains that a cornered Vladimir Putin and a Russia that has entirely painted itself into a corner with this conflict is a very dangerous and unpredictable prospect. Having miscalculated the strength of the global response, Putin can't possibly now emerge from this war with anything that even begins to outweigh the cost his country has faced in sanctions. He now has similarly little to lose, and that is a very dangerous environment for even further escalation. The simple fact is that a no-fly zone or further NATO expansion onto Russia's borders would be seen as further provocation that Putin has made very clear he will not stomach. In a recent call with Emmanuel Macron, he insisted that Russia's red lines remain the same, the demilitarisation and political neutrality of Ukraine. NATO and the West are very much pushing back on that proposition, insisting, not unreasonably, that he hasn't exactly honoured any of his past commitments to non-hostility. So any push to render Ukraine neutral now is hardly likely to be based on the most honest of intentions. Essentially, both sides are now sabre-rattling, with Ukraine crushed underfoot as they dance around each other. It is all deeply bleak and dismal stuff, 
And to some extent, Putin is obviously relying on fear of his unpredictability as a bargaining chip to get what he wants. It's obviously untenable that he be allowed to get away with it, but at the same time, a no-fly zone is not a happy middle option between throwing Ukraine to the wolves and World War III. A war zone isn't Wimbledon. You can't just close the roof on it and carry on with the action on the ground. A no-fly zone would mean NATO forces actively shooting down Russian jets and helicopters, which would absolutely drag the West into a much wider conflict. What's more, there is a very real and terrifying possibility that such a move would only end up helping Ukraine just long enough to see it annihilated by the most horrifying escalation yet. The barbarity we've seen so far has been unforgivable, but if there is any chance that diplomacy and caution can yet avoid the most unthinkable of outcomes, then NATO really does have to apply the coldest and most brutal of logic here. And God, even saying that I feel dirty and I'm not the one making the decision. I'm Tom King. And I'm going to go home and teabag a very cold leadline bath. Reporting for IC News. While the feeling of complete impotence in the face of Ukraine's suffering might be debilitating, there are many things the British government could at least be doing to help more of the two million refugees who have now fled the country. But in rather typically welcoming style, we... Um, haven't exactly done any of them. Having spent the last few years pursuing policies that made it harder for Eastern Europeans to come here, it turns out that Home Secretary Priti Patel is now finding it somewhat difficult to pivot to a more compassionate position, presumably because her feet are usually anchored to the eaves of a haunted church, where she squats with stone wings furled around her in order to terrify incoming dinghies full of Syrians. Joining us in the studio today to discuss the UK's bungled response to the refugee crisis, it's our Conservative correspondent, Sebastian Forlock. Hello to you, Sam, and thank you for the gracious welcome. Well, they're surprisingly easy to offer if you just put your mind to it, Sebastian. Which I suppose brings us neatly on to the criticism the government has faced this week over its heavily bureaucratic approach to this situation. Let's be honest, it's all been a bit of a mess, hasn't it? Now, now, let's not be too hasty, Sam. This is obviously a large and complicated operation with lots of moving parts. Yeah, including the visa centres themselves, which appeared to exist only in Pretty Patel's head at first, before then suddenly materialising and jumping all over France. If I could finish. And despite some teething issues, I think we'll all see in the long run that now we're free from the red tape of the European Union, Britain will in fact be leading from the front on this issue. Yeah, except the EU has already waived all visa requirements for Ukrainians fleeing the conflict, and extended their right to stay in EU countries for three years. Are you saying we're going to end up exceeding that generosity? We'll be leading from the very front, Sam. That's what I said, without getting into specifics. I think we should get into specifics, though, because specifically, so far the UK has approved only around a 1,000 visas, with over 20,000 still to be processed. And the Home Secretary specifically said this week that no refugees were being turned back from Calais, when hundreds of them very much are. 
She also specifically claimed that there were facilities for processing visa applications in Calais when that hadn't been set up yet, and the specific processing centre that she specifically said was already set up in Calais but wasn't has now been set up in Lille, 70 miles away from Calais, meaning that those refugees that she specifically said weren't being turned back from Calais are, in fact, being turned back. Not the easiest word, specifically, is it? I think we can both agree in hindsight that I could have scripted this in a way that didn't expose my issues with soft consonants quite so starkly, Sebastian, but that's beside the point. And which point specifically are you making? That for all of the government's self-congratulatory rhetoric, we aren't leading from the front when it comes to making life easier for Ukrainian refugees at all. In fact, we're presiding over the most bureaucratically labyrinthine and poorly administered response in Europe. Well, that's not the view of our illustrious Prime Minister, Sam, who I believe this week made the excellent point that no country in Europe has done more to settle vulnerable people since 2015 than Great Britain. Yeah, except that was absolute bullshit as well, wasn't it? And Number 10 had to issue a clarification pretty damn quickly that he was referring to a very specific... specific figure about resettled refugees, meaning those that had first sought refuge elsewhere. Yes, and? And we absolutely pale in comparison in terms of actual refugee numbers compared to many other countries in Europe. Around 30,000 Syrians since 2015 compared to over 600,000 in Germany. Perhaps you can explain for our listeners just what's leading from the front about that sort of shameless political sleight of hand when Ukrainian pensioners are standing outside our shuttered visa offices in Warsaw for hours on end in minus three degree weather. (sighs) Sam, my boy, you simply have to stop being so dewy-eyed and naive about all this. These things take time. There is a sponsorship scheme coming, and the visa process will be streamlined. This is all just anti-Boris guff, precisely the sort of negativity that our Ukrainian brothers and sisters don't need right now. Oh, that's politically opportunistic nonsense, and you know it. We are two weeks into this conflict, Sebastian, and it was being predicted for months beforehand. All of this could have been foreseen and planned for, and the UK, yet again, simply hasn't prepared. We're talking about a wider asylum process that is unwelcoming and burdensome, and functions that way by design. Public outrage over the war in Ukraine has placed political pressure on this government to streamline it, but clearly basic empathy in matching Europe's approach to visas now plays second fiddle to this government's pathological need to diverge from the EU's lead. The hostile environment simply isn't that easy to magically reverse. The gates have been pulled so tight against asylum seekers for years now that clearly they've seized shut. Well, what about our national security, Sam? Surely you're not suggesting that we simply open our doors to Russian agents and saboteurs? Well, that's Pretty Patel's argument, and it would stink a lot less like festering bullshit if we hadn't been doing exactly that for years in the form of corrupt oligarchs buying their way in through the golden visa system and pouring their dark money into our politics. Oh, and let's not forget our Prime Minister allegedly personally intervening to give one of them a peerage, against the security recommendations of his own advisers. An unproven accusation of malice, Sam, I hasten to add. 
Well, the point, Sebastian, is that this government has already clearly cozied up to plenty of malevolent Russian individuals, using the threat of them as an excuse to prolong the suffering of Ukrainians trying to seek refuge and rejoin their families here, is hypocritical in the extreme. Um, the sort of world-beating hypocrisy that's leading from the very front, you might say. I might not. Well, clearly we're just going to have to agree to disagree, old Bean. I happen to think this government has been positively world-beating in its glorious welcome to the Ukrainian refugees, and you're rather more focused on your petty squabbles than the tragedy of this war. Actually, I just want this government to magically discover its administrative competence and start demonstrating some genuine empathy. Yes, yeah, right, good one. Competence and empathy. (laughs) Uh, Not exactly qualities Pretty Patel is particularly overburdened with. (laughs) You are a card, Sam. (laughs) I'm Sebastian Forlock, once again leading from the very front with praise for our glorious government, reporting for IC News. While the government scrambles to rescue its reputation in the face of the refugee crisis, another deeply cynical way the war in Ukraine is being exploited here in Britain is through the cost-of-living crisis. While there's no doubt that the necessary transition away from energy dependency on Russia will have a knock-on effect on fuel prices and therefore inflation, it isn't the only factor driving up so many costs here in the UK. There's been an obvious shift in the narrative over the last couple of weeks towards our responsibility as individuals to make financial sacrifices in order to help Ukraine. But the simple fact is that much of the economic crisis now facing Britain was in fact baked in before a single Russian tank trundled across the Ukrainian border. And of course, you can't spell disgustingly opportunistic cunt flailing desperately for political relevance without Nigel Farage, who this week performed his annual appearance from beneath the shit heap of poor political decisions he's helped to steer Britain towards. In the face of the coming energy crisis, he now wants a referendum on Britain's commitment to reaching carbon net zero, presumably because without a constant toxic slag heap on which to engorge himself, whether it's metaphorical or literal, he would finally wither and die. Here to explain for the kids who should actually be paying for the blowback of sanctions, rather than the future health of the entire planet, it's our youth correspondent David Stanier. Hi kids, it's me, excitable newsboy and all-round tippity-top fun-time party guy David Stanier. Don't worry, I know what you're all thinking. It's this, isn't it? Sorry, (laughs) gave myself a bit of a head rush there. It's a bad feeling, that noise, isn't it? But don't you worry, news fans. Big Hugs Dave is here, and he understands all your fresh and nasty new anxieties. You lot must be feeling like some of the unluckiest kids in history. Even worse than them Victorian ones that had to work in a mill and got their hands stuck in a loom. You've just lived through two years of a ruddy pandemic, and now you're dealing with the threat of nuclear war. It's... And I don't mind putting a penny in the swear jar for this one. A right shitter. Now, I know a lot of you are going to be worried by what you can see going on over in Ukraine. 
which is why I'm talking to you today to try and help you with the benefit of my experience. You see, I've been fighting my own insurgency against the nightmare forces of late-stage capitalism for years now, and I picked up more than a few coping mechanisms. Can you say childlike disassociative state kids? What's more, baddie vladdy Putin poopin' pants doesn't scare me. All my terror of authority figures is entirely centred around my own father, who between the ages of three and twelve subjected me and eleven other children to a brutal paramilitary training and brainwashing programme of his own design. The government tried to say that my old dad's abandoned farmhouse was an anarchist training compound and terrorist facility, where the most unspeakable cruelties were inflicted upon innocent children in order to turn them into unstoppable killing machines. But if that's true, why are they all dead and now exist only in my memories, screaming as they pound on the barred gates of a burning outhouse? Save us, David! You were supposed to be the best of us! <laughs> Sorry, number five. There could only be one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, kids. Just having a slight PTSD flashback there. And you know what PTSD stands for? Past thoughts, silly Dave. I'm afraid it's fucking inevitable with all this global horror kicking off. Oh, another one for the jar. But enough about me. Like we're climbing up a massive pencil, let's get to the point, shall we? Today we're learning about sanctions, and how this war is going to have a serious impact on our already pretty bloody awful cost-of-living crisis. This week, the US, UK and European Union announced plans to phase out their dependence on Russian oil and gas exports as part of their joint efforts to counter the Russian war effort. That global shortfall in supply is going to cause a run on demand and drive up the price of something called Brent crude. Now, I don't really care who Brent is, or why he keeps being so fucking crude. Oops. Again. But what it basically means is that soon fuel and energy prices are going to rise even higher, and those costs will inevitably get passed down to all of us. Um, excuse me, Mr. David, but aren't short-term price rises a small price to pay if it means standing in solidarity with those suffering in Ukraine? Whoa there, little fella. Two things. One, that's some serious centrist dad energy for a five-year-old you got there. Did you choose those shoes or bootcut jeans yourself? You sound like you've almost paid off your mortgage. And two, yes, absolutely, we should be having difficult and honest conversations about the painful cost of this conflict. Obviously, the cost in terms of Ukrainian lives is the most important one, but this war is being waged on an economic front too, and sanctions and boycotts cause damage in both directions. Now, don't get me wrong, we absolutely should be willing to accept the price when it comes to supporting Ukraine. It won't be cheap, but clearly part of that price comes with the need to freeze out a Russian regime which has long wielded the world's dependency on its fuel exports to its own strategic advantage. But what we mustn't do is simply accept that shouldering that cost should become entirely the responsibility of the common taxpayer. Instead, we should be talking about windfall taxes on fossil fuel companies and start looking at putting a squeeze on our own oligarch class, or as we call them, for some reason, billionaires. And we absolutely should not be listening to parasitical shithouses like that racist Pez dispenser, Nigel Farage, with his scary thin teeth. Who wants to use this crisis as an excuse to tear apart our commitment to the greater geopolitical security and energy independence offered by a carbon net zero future? And no, I'm not putting a coin in the swear jar for that one, because when it comes to Farage, shithouse is really just the most suitable adjective. And besides, this pipe bomb is now full. So let's sing our goodbye song, kids. 
Hack with shrapnel, coins and gravel. I.E.D. Yes, indeed. Tape it to the Rolls Royce. Revolution rejoice. Kill the rich. Kill the rich. Hmm. I wonder if this sort of targeted assassination is in poor taste, all things considered. Nah. That's the sort of weak thinking that got numbers 2 through 12 killed. And I never listen to them. No matter how hard they scream my name at night. Banging on that outhouse door in my nightmares. <laughs> I'm David Stanier, and I still find barbecues rather traumatic. Staring into the burning coals for ages and watching the sausages burn. Reporting for IC News. You know, just once I'd like to employ a journalist who doesn't then turn out to be a secretly homicidal maniac. It makes our commitment to impartiality very difficult to balance out. Ah well, David's report brings us to the end of our broadcast. We'll be back again with another episode at 8am next Sunday. But until then, we leave you now, as always, with the headlines you may have missed. Private schools in England are reportedly facing a funding shortfall as sanctions hit some of their Russian donors. As a result, posh twonks hoping to follow in David Cameron's footsteps by joining the Bullingdon Club will now have to fuck a spam sandwich, rather than a full pig's carcass. Animators at Pixar criticise their parent company Disney for censoring gay affection in their movies, including a deleted scene in Wall-E in which the title character accidentally attempts to recharge himself with a butt plug. Shell apologises for buying cheap Russian crude at the start of the war in Ukraine, and insists that it will now source its deadly planet-choking poisons much more ethically in the future. And finally, the wreck of Ernest Shackleton's ship, the Endurance, is discovered after spending over a century lost at sea. The frozen ruin has become a mating ground for Antarctic lobsters, who invite each other round for some wreck and chill. You've been listening to IC News. Thank you, and goodbye. me, Danny Sutcliffe. I'm here today with the right bargain for you. And no, it's not just the mystery me I've got in the back of my van. Although that is also primo stuff, so meet me behind odd bins and flash your full beams if you're interested. If you haven't joined our Patreon yet, we've got a special offer for you. Sign up now as one of our early bird supporters and you can get access to all of our exclusive content for just £2 a month. If you want bonus podcast sketches, compilation episodes and ICU stories, this is the cheapest you're ever going to get them. You've got to be quick though, this deal is limited to the first 500 patrons and they'll get snapped up quick. It's the best way to show your support for the show and you'll be helping us to grow moving forwards. As always, thank you for all of your support and we hope you enjoy the show. And no, it's not badger meat. And if Brian May tries to tell you otherwise, he's a fucking liar.